You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. And if you don't have your Bibles, it should be up on the screen possibly. And so I want to start, so at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and, I will find, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the reading of the Lord. All right, maybe may be seated. Good morning, Redemption Church. We do have Redemption Kids for ages two to four, so if that serves you, you may go across the hallway. If you haven't checked in your kiddos, you can do that at the computer. Uh, at the moment, just so you know, we are having some technical difficulties regarding slides, so um, if you want to have your Bible open or your, or your digital Bible or your the good old classic Bible, one that's actual paper, uh, you Put your finger right in Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30. That's where we'll be camped out today. Maybe those slides get up, maybe they don't. That's okay. Uh, if you were gone last week and the week before, I highlighted a few books that were given away, and I want to make sure it gets into your hands, uh, one for each household. And if you're not a member of Redemption Church and you still want to take these books, please uh, take them on the way out. Uh, the first one is a, the Handbook for Praying Scripture. Over the summer, as many of you already know, uh, we are just putting a high, we're just really highlighting what it means to be a praying church, what it means to be a praying family, what it means for you to be praying individually. Uh, this particular book helps you pray through Scripture. It's a great resource. It's for you, so please take that. And also, we have a, a hardcover-bound copy of our Confession of Faith. Uh, you've been seeing, obviously, that on Sunday mornings as we, yeah, as we recite it. So uh, it's all in, all in here. And uh, as I said last week, we have our Confession of Faith, and you'll notice... Below it, all footnoted, is the Scripture. At the end of the day, we are bound to God's Word. And so we have theological statements that we make about God and what we believe about God, but ultimately that's rooted in God's Word. And so we put Scripture in there, uh, not just the reference of like you know Romans 8. We put in all of the passage so that guides your thoughts on the Lord regarding our theology. So you can grab those on the way out, and hopefully that serves you. As you can tell from the public reading of God's Word, I will not preach from the book of Hebrews this morning. On Tuesday, uh, I, was, I uh, had completed my Greek exegesis of Hebrews 3, verses 1 to 6. Exegesis means just kind of taking the passage apart and getting into the particulars. And, and I did that and started outlying, uh, making an outline for today's message. But on Thursday, I, I had a change of heart. It happens occasionally. I'm a man who 
you know, creates a preaching calendar and likes to schedule things out and kind of make a plan and work the plan. But on Thursday, um, something began to shift in my heart regarding a message for today. So I began to pray, and I invited um, men from the, community, from the community group that I'm a part of to join me in prayer, and I thank you f- for your prayer. On Friday morning, I woke up and I had a strong sense that this was the direction that the Lord wanted me to go in. I'm going to be frank, I don't know all the reasons why. Um, usually you like the why answered. <laughs> what I do know is I feel like, one, the passage speaks for itself. Two, this is for us this morning. The words of Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30, are precious. They are precious. And I trust God will use His Word to minister to your heart in these next 35 minutes. On a personal note, I have read this passage more times than I can count over 20 years of following the Lord. Uh, They have ministered to my heart again and again and again. i got to tell you, as I dug into the details of this passage, I walked away even more amazed at God's kindness and care. I don't know why I'm surprised (laughs) by that. Right? It's God's Word. He's constantly pouring into us through His Word. Uh, But once again, I just walked away just overwhelmed by His kindness and care. So I'm going to pray briefly, and then we'll get into today's text. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, knowing that your word is for us, and for our good, and for our edification and encouragement. Lord, you have spoken, and you continue to speak. So may these precious folks in front of me hear from you. Lord, my prayer is that I would be faithful what you have already said. And for those here this morning who come weary, tired, I pray that you'd meet with them. I pray that you'd encourage their heart. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been a pastor for 10-ish years. Um, almost 10. Over 10 years, I have had many conversations of like, how are you doing in life, right? I had that conversation with many of you. How are you doing? And if you've been around me for longer than five minutes, you've heard this question come out of my mouth. And if you haven't heard it, just buckle up, you'll eventually hear it from me. It's, how is your soul doing? That's the question I asked often. How is your soul doing? Responses vary. Some people kind of caught off guard by the question. Oftentimes I get, a, I get an answer like, I'm doing okay, but man, I'm tired. That, that qualifier, I'm tired, comes out a lot. I'm just tired. I'm physically exhausted. And usually I get a statement of, I don't know how to describe my spiritual life. It's a common you know, themes regarding an answer. And I would imagine... Some of you can relate, if not today, then at some point in your life. Your life uh, is a grind, right? 
There are always things to do. There's always people to see. You look at your calendar and you think to yourself, I mean, Sharice and I do this often. We look at our calendar for the week and we're just like, how in the world are we going to accomplish everything? Perhaps you're worn out from being an Uber driver for your kids, right? And they're not paying you. (laughs) But you love them, so you, you do it, right? You're tired from being a referee when there is conflict. Perhaps you're the one creating conflict and you know it and you're tired of that. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. The most taxing job in the world, I think, is being a stay-at-home mom. That's exhausting. Perhaps you do go to work. You wake up, you grab your cup of coffee, you head to the door, you do your job. Then you get home, you're at the front door. And if you're a parent, who's there? It's the kids and your spouse. After eight to ten hours of working, your more important job actually begins. (laughs) You are a father or a mother or a husband or wife or you're single and you're simply attempting to get on with all the growing responsibilities of life. Like kids, guess what? You're growing up. Responsibilities increase. And there's this constant temptation to be, I'm just so tired and weary. It's all exhausting. And let's not forget this. Like, the older you get, (laughs) the the more tired you become, it seems. At least for some of us. For you extra special people, God bless you, (laughs) who 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 have more energy later in life. That's great. But a lot of people, man, it's like, the older I get, my energy just seems to wane. Weariness does not just affect families and people with vocations. Nope, we're all confronted with weariness. We all face putting too much on the plate to, where, to the point where the stuff's just falling off the plate. When life is a grind, you can become spiritually sucked dry. So how is your soul doing? It can be hard to answer the question Because life can be exhausting. If you are a Christian and you count yourself among the weary, I have good news for you this morning. Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30, is an encouragement for you. For you. This passage is the truth you must remember when you wake up in the morning when you feel the weight of the daily grind, and when you place your head on the pillow at night. Just make a beeline to this passage. If you've come to church this morning anxious, weary, tired, or frustrated with life, I I pray that by the time I'm done, time you leave, you'll be at rest, or at the very least you're considering the one who gives you, who provides for you, who offers you rest. Take a look at today's context of our passage. It's always important for me to situate our passage in the literary context. The encouragement of verses 25 to 30 comes after a bunch of warnings by Christ toward the culture. It's very interesting. His culture is a bunch of hypocritical religious leaders. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, He had not come to bring peace but the sword. 
Now that sounds like the opposite of rest. Let's read part of that passage. Our Lord says this, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. I mean, that's just jarring. Like, what? For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The point Jesus makes is that the gospel is divisive. And it sorts out people into two groups, those who follow Christ and those who don't follow Christ. But the imagery is jarring. It's almost like, how does rest even fit into this? And then, right before the passage we're considering right now, Jesus speaks judgment upon specific cities. For example, he calls out Capernaum. Jesus had performed many miracles in Capernaum, and many rejected him. He says it would be better for Sodom on the day of judgment than Capernaum. Now let's think here. What happened to Sodom in Genesis 19? Sulfur sulfur and fire fell upon the people living in the city. He wiped it out. And Jesus is now saying, Capernaum, Sodom has it better than you because you rejected me. So what is going on here? And then we get into today's passage. What is going on? Part of the answer is that God is bringing order out of chaos. God is bringing order to the culture, communities, churches, homes, and specifically to your soul. The ordering in God's kingdom happens in the least likely places and with the least likely people. Let's take a look at verses 25 and 26 of Matthew 11. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Like these things being, why is Jesus pronouncing condemnation upon the religious leaders in places like Capernaum? And you have revealed them to little children. Little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The earth is terribly sick because of sin. Sin brought chaos to God's creation. The sin of mankind has corrupted God's good creation, and it needs a Savior and Lord. At his incarnation, Jesus established his kingdom on earth. God has chosen a different kind of people to be a part of his kingdom. He is not looking for the self-sufficient. I can do it on my own. I don't need God. I, I got it. He's not looking for that kind of person. He's not scouring the earth for the modern day Plato's and Aristotle's, those wise philosophers who walk around thinking they got, got it all figured out. Nope. The kingdom of God does not consist of the haughty and the arrogant. Jesus has established a kingdom of people who are deeply dependent upon the grace and mercy of God. Simply stated, the economy of God is wholly different than what the wise men and women of this earth can conjure up. To make the point, Jesus says that the will of God has been revealed 
not to hypocritical religious leaders and not those who rejected him at Capernaum. God has revealed his will to little children. In Koine Greek, it's the language that the New Testament is written in, the most common word for child is paideon. Right? If you're in the classical education world, you might hear the word paideia, right? child. Paideon is not used here. The word used here means infant. Think about that for a moment. The younger the child, the more dependent they are upon their parents. I mean, I don't need to be crass, but an infant relies on their mom for food, right? Like one of the goals of parents is to make sure infants, like, that they don't die <laughs> as they raise them. Like, don't run into the street, get over here, right? But they're completely dependent upon us for their safety, for their food, etc. They need constant order and structure. So God builds his kingdom with that kind of people, deeply needy people. And before looking at the rest of the passage, let me tell you why this is actually really, really good news. It is good news because we know what the world has to offer. I know what Sean Powers has to offer in his own self-sufficiency. A bunch of failures. been running the rat race and attempting to live the what? The American dream. That American dream. American dream. Bunch of checks that can't get cashed. We've all been on the hamster wheel of life and are desperately trying to get off. The principles of God's kingdom provides you with an exit strategy. Listen, life is busy. That is a given. But a busy life does not need to preclude rest for the weary soul. Like in the remainder of our passage, there are like two separate points that are deeply connected that can provide a remedy for the weary soul, for weary little children. And rest, biblical rest, is the antidote of getting off that hamster wheel that is causing all the anxiety, that is causing all the hardship, that is causing all the weariness. So here are these two big categories I want you to be thinking out of as we continue to go forward and as we walk through the remainder of this passage. Number one, we see the sovereignty of God and the salvation. And number two, we see the remedy for weary children. The second point requires the foundation of the first point. Read with me verse 27 where Jesus says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The Son knows the Father, the Father knows the Son, and the little children referenced in verse 25 know their Heavenly Father because the Son reveals the Father to them. Jesus claims He is the source and locus of revelation. Verse 27 is reminiscent of John 10, which I encourage you to read in its entirety later. In John 10, Jesus says that he and the Father are one, which is the same vibe we have here in Matthew 11. I don't know if this is true, but I find it insightful if it is true. Uh, most of you have heard of Gandhi. Right? 
He was a civil and religious leader in India in the late 19th, early 20th century. Gandhi was dying, the story goes, and one of his relatives asked him, Babaki, I think, which means peacemaker, you've been looking for God your entire life. Have you found him yet? And Gandhi replied, no, I'm still looking. People looked to Gandhi to look for God. But the truth is, the only one, the only person you can look to to find God is Christ, the Son. Our Lord Jesus made a profound statement when he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As I said, Matthew eleven twenty seven is the foundation, we see why, for verses 28 to 30. So here are a few more key points for verse 27 that speak about Jesus and his relationship to the Father. There's an unbreakable harmony between the Father and Son. Like I had a hard time putting into words a description of the relationship between the Father and Son, so I'm going to allow the word to sum up the relationship. Here's, let's go back to the Gospel of John, John 7. Jesus says, you know me, you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Jesus knows that the Father is true. He is truth. And Jesus, likewise, is also truth, the truth. This is not a minor point because God's grace and mercy and love are also extended to his people through Christ. John Calvin, that great reformer from the 16th century, connects a few dots for us regarding the relationship between the Father and the Son and then our relationship with God. He says this. The passage may be summed up. First, it is a gift of the Father that the Son is known. Because by his Spirit, he opens the eyes of the mind to discern the glory of Christ, which otherwise would have been hidden from us. Second, Calvin says, the Father who dwells in inaccessible light and is in himself incomprehensible is revealed to us by the Son because he is the lively image of him so that it is in vain to seek for him elsewhere. So we don't, we don't go to Gandhi to know God, we go to Christ. The second point from verse 27 is a point of application. Calvin hints at it at the end, but I want to make it explicit. A person can only know God if the Holy Spirit actually reveals the Son. The Spirit, when the Spirit reveals the Son, the, the, the treasures of heaven are opened up to his sons and daughters. There's, there is no rest for the weary soul unless one knows the Son. The final point I want to make about verse 27 is that God is sovereign over, over the salvation of souls. I think that's what we see here as well. I know I preached like an entire sermon series on this theme, but the truth is reinforced here. And the sovereignty of God and salvation is a great comfort for God's little children. Are you a little child of God? You can have great comfort that he is sovereign over your life and over your salvation. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on a cross and rose from death, and he is currently Lord over all things, then you can rejoice and have great comfort. If you know Christ, verses 28 to 30 are a healing tonic for the weary soul. 
because of knowing Christ, the Holy Spirit is at work in you, and you are the recipient of the Father's love. And now, what might be the most comforting passage in Holy Scripture, although when Ryan quoted Psalm 23, <laughs> that felt good too. Jesus says to his blood-bought little children, he says this, come to me. Come to me. Theologian Michael Green says this about the words of Christ. Here, and I quote, Come to me. I have come to seek you out. Green says, What grace that God should come to seek his rebel subjects with no word of condemnation on his lips, but an invitation. Come. That one word shows us the very heart of God. That his attitude, that is his attitude towards sinners, the weary and the heavy laden and burdened are particularly invited. Before I look at the rest of the passage, allow the imagery to work and become your reality. If you know God, you are a little child of your heavenly father. And the one word that he says to you, the invitation it's come. One of the joys of being a parent is that my kids come to me with their burdens, right? I invite them to come to me if they are struggling with life problems or been disappointed or run into adversity. Problems, disappointment, adversity might, might include everything from like, you know, I fell and I skinned my knee to really good, big questions about God. The role of a good parent is to always be available to their little children, regardless of how old they are. Like My kids will grow up, 30s, 40s, they'll still be my little children. And tell them in the grave I want to be available. But I know I'm a flawed father. I always don't get it right. I have to repent of my sins. There's moments where I have to seek out my children and ask them for forgiveness if I've sinned against them. Because I am imperfect, I'm constantly attempting to direct the gaze of my children to a heavenly father and a perfect savior. And he says, come. He says, come. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Here's the alternative to, the pa to this passage. Here's what life is like without Christ. Without Christ, you hear, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you more anxiety, more things to do, and increase your burdens. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am harsh and proud in heart, and you will find constant torment for your souls. For my yoke is hard, 
and my burden is heavy. That is your creed and that is your reality apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, you're like the Hebrew who is in slavery in Egypt. Let's go back to the book of Exodus for a moment. And you're making bricks. That's what you do as a slave when you're in Egypt. You make bricks. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh's like, you know what? Get your own straw. We've been providing it thus far. You are going to get it for yourself. Thus, making the burden much greater. That is our life apart from Christ. But praise be to God. He is not a taskmaster, but a gracious Father who comforts us through the Son. When Jesus says, come to me, he literally means, come and follow me. Jesus does not say, come to me, all you who are righteous. Jesus does not say, come to me when you've got it all figured out. He didn't say that. Jesus does not say, come to me when you've taken care of that one sin. Jesus does not say, come to me after you've memorized a hundred verses in the Bible and have some good theology. Those who are laboring and carrying heavy burdens, those are the ones Jesus says, come. Often the burden you carry is your deficiencies. I know that it is for me. It could be your sin. Here's one of my favorite stories in the Gospel of Luke. I will read it to you because it shows us what you need in your heart to come to God and find relief. Luke 18. He also told this parable, that is Jesus, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And I quote, Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Just how hot. See the haughtiness of this prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like those other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes in all, of all that I get. That was the Pharisee's prayer. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off. Why was he standing far off? What do you think? He was sitting in shame. He's like, how could, I, how could I possibly approach in prayer? Because I know my sin. Standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And here's a really important line. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We must pursue a humble heart just like the wretched sinner that Jesus was talking about in that parable.
the implication from Matthew 11, verse 28, is that Jesus bids you to come over and over. You approach the Lord in the good times and in the bad times, the hard times. You approach the Lord when you feel good or when you feel bad, regardless of how you feel. You approach the Lord while working that nine-to-five job and when you're at home with the kids. You approach the Lord on Sunday morning and on Wednesday evening. And guess what? Jesus knows what you are going through. He is not surprised by tragedy or the moment you received that horrible news or that bad day that you had. He's not surprised by any of that. Matthew eleven twenty 20 to 30 is a promise for all of God's little children. God knows that you are laboring on a day-to-day basis. God knows the heavy burdens that you carry. You've tried a different way of laboring, and it's still hard. Not surprised. You've tried to offload burdens, right? But just don't do these five things. And then somehow these other five things get put back on. And the message for you this morning is this. Come to Christ and rest. We will, we will tease this idea out later in the book of Hebrews, probably sometime in July. But we read in chapter 4, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For, who, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The author of Hebrews compares God resting on the seventh day of creation with our rest in God. It's, a, it's actually a profound comparison, a profound connection. Once you've paused to rest, then it is possible to take on the yoke of Christ. I want to offer a practical solution to the weary soul. I believe wholeheartedly that God has created people to work. Uh, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, and throughout all of Scripture, tells us that this is the case. And the power of observation only confirms what we read in Holy Scripture. People are working, called to work. But God has also created us to rest. You are to rest in Christ, and you are to physically rest. The two are connected. And here's my practical solution. If you are weary, build habits that connect resting in Christ with physical rest. When we get to Hebrews 4, I'll explain why Sunday is supposed to be a day of rest. Not everyone agrees with that. Not, not even in this church and in this denomination that we're a part of, not everyone agrees with that. I'll make the case. Some, some people will disagree, and that's fine. But until then, realize that you might be perpetually weary because you're not resting the right way. Not looking at the right person. I know, that, I know that's the case for me. Our Lord offers additional thoughts, we see. Jesus says in verse 29, Take my yoke upon you. Now, what does that mean? Like, unless, you grew, unless you're growing up on an Amish farm, I don't think many of you are, any of you are, or before the invention of the tractor, you probably don't know what yoke is or you don't use the word much. Here's what it is, and here's why the, the metaphor is actually really powerful. 
A yoke is a wooden cross piece fastened over the necks of two animals. It was like a massive collar resting on the shoulder of oxen or bulls. A yoke allows two animals to share a load and pull together. Fields, fields were plowed and wagons were pulled together, right, with that yoke. Everyone listening to Jesus would have understood the image. I want you to notice that Jesus did not say, remove your yoke and put nothing back on. That's not what this text says. The oxen still need to plow the field. You still need to work a job, go to school, raise children. You can fill in the blank for yourself. What Jesus is saying is that when you learn from him and not from the world, when you look to him as your all-satisfying joy and not look to your own desires, your profession, or your hobby, when you come to Christ, you learn that harshness is replaced with gentleness. When you follow Christ, your heart becomes low, which means your posture toward God is humble, has his humble disposition. Only when you share the yoke with Jesus will you know the importance of being in a relationship with him. When you share the yoke with Jesus, your soul will find rest. So Jesus is saying, come to me. Come get yoked right up next to me. We're going to plow that field together. We're going to do it together. When you go to work, you get yoked up right next to Christ. Moms, stay at home, kids running around, craziness. Not only trying to make sure your infant doesn't die, you're trying to make sure your older kids don't die. <laughs> Get yoked up next to Christ. But let's get real for a moment. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30 is such a comforting passage, but how can we practically live out this passage? Here are a few considerations for finding rest for your soul. First, come, right? If you're not following Christ this morning and he is telling you, come to me, don't wait. If you can hear the words coming out of my mouth and you're not following Christ, you know how restless your life has been. You have not found peace, but you live in chaos internally and externally. If you are a Christian, then you need the constant reminder to receive the words of Christ. Come, follow him. Do not look anywhere else. Once again, come. Second, we need to learn from Christ, verse 29. We learn from Christ by reading the Bible. Let's start there. I, I, I do not know if it's because I'm getting older or the days of being a Christian are getting more numerous but I've become more keenly aware of all the various avenues in which we can learn. The internet has undoubtedly played a major factor. Because of all our access to information, we can learn ideologies that are just diametrically opposed from Christ. We also learn from Christians who are commenting on Christianity and Christ. Right? We read those books, the latest and greatest book that just came out, and all the Christians are reading it, and we flock to that. And I'm guilty of that, and sometimes that's good. Or 
we can go right to the source. We can learn from God. The Bible is batting 1,000% when it comes to telling us about God. I'm not a stats guy, but I like that stat. Here's the promise I'm willing to make. You will discover a more profound rest for your soul if you're in God's word. If you're willing to put down the phone, shut down the social media apps, block out the news, right? Maybe not all the time. We don't want to be completely naive, but let's be honest, our consumption of the news is probably way more than what it should be. And we, all, we get all worked up over that. If you do those things, I think, and you're in God's word, you will find meaningful peace and rest. Third, and it's kind of connected to the second point, Christians have been given a tremendous amount of ability actually to pursue rest. The problem is not that we lack the remedy to our restless soul. The problem is that we continue to follow all the wrong solutions. If I tell you that you need to enter my house through the locked door and I give you a hammer, not a key, then I've given you the wrong tool. I've given you the wrong solution. Instead of praying when we're at home and the home's at war, we fade into the background and endlessly scroll. And we need to press into prayer in those moments. Instead of pleading to God for help, when crisis hits, we jump on Google to look for all the solutions. We just sleuth Google. How do I solve this? And the fact of the matter is, we need to come to God. We need to heed that from Jesus. Come to me. I know it's hard right now, but first come to me. These kind of habits will cultivate rest for our weary soul. Here's the bottom line. We live in a culture training us to trust in ourselves and in the things of the world instead of Christ. And Jesus says, no, no, no. No. That path does not lead to peace and rest. But Jesus says, I give you peace. I give you rest. And you and I need the humility to admit our need to receive what the Lord provides. So, if your soul is weary this morning, what steps will you implement to pursue rest? Right? What are you willing to rearrange in your life? What are you willing to put down to pursue meaningful rest? In my experience, change only happens with a plan. And if you want to bring order to your chaotic life and to your chaotic soul, a plan that includes Christ is the path toward lasting rest. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.